And uh, as we jump in, I want to ask uh, you, do you, have you ever, I'm sure you have, you've probably been asked a loaded question before. Uh, do you know what a loaded question or, a, or an assumptive question is? It's when you ask somebody something and you're already presuming something, maybe a falsehood, uh, some unfound presumption of guilt. I'll give you a few examples. Maybe these stick out. Uh, or let me go back. Hey, have you stopped cheating on your taxes? Right? That's a loaded question. You don't ever want to be asked that, especially by, the, by your accountant. Okay? The next one, what's wrong? I didn't realize this was a loaded question, but you're already assuming something is wrong with a person. My wife hates it when I ask this question. I do it all the time. Next one, where are you going to college this fall? You know, in this season of grad parties, maybe you go to grad parties, you just automatically ask, hey, where are you going to college this fall? But I've found out, because I've been to a lot of grad parties, that, you know, not everybody's going to college. Maybe some people are going into the military or into a trade or taking a gap year. The next one, uh, when did you move to the U.S.? Maybe you've made this mistake. You meet somebody, maybe they have an accent, um, and you might just assume that they weren't born here, so you ask them this only to find out that, hey, they were born and raised here. That can be pretty embarrassing. Here's a big one. Where'd you put the remote? You don't even assume that they had the remote. It's just like, where'd you put it, right? This is a problem at our house. Where'd you put the remote? This, is, this happened to me, all right? I have a story to tell you about an assumptive question. And so back in my early 20s, I had this car, and it had manual door locks, you know, the kind you had to push, and it had crank windows. And if you're under the age of 20, you're like, what's he talking about? Was this car pulled by a horse? No. You had to crank the window. Like, it made you tough. We were built different back then, all right? Uh, but the door lock knob was stuck, all right? So I had grabbed some pliers, and I'm pulling on this thing with everything I got, and it breaks, and I pull the plier handle up into my eye socket. Knocked myself out of my truck. That's how hard I hit myself, all right? And I got up off the ground, and I couldn't see anything. It was just black. And I, you know, feel my way into the house, and I'm standing in front of the mirror, and I, like I'm splashing my face, I'm blinking, and my vision starts to come back, and I can see, which is awesome, except now my right eye is looking that way. And this eye can move, this one can't. I look like a chameleon. It was bad. So I go to the emergency room, and they're cool, you know, they're like, ah, it's probably, you probably just bruised the muscle up there, and you're probably going to have a black eye, but you should follow up with your optometrist the next day. So I go to my optometrist, and he's like, no, I think you fractured the orbital socket. You're going to have to get a CT scan. So I got the CT scan. Everything was okay, just some really bad bruising in the muscle, and I had an awesome black eye. And again, my right eye was looking this way, which is not cool, and it's like I can't wear an eye patch because I'm not a pirate. So I just had to deal with this. And I tell you what, so many people came up to me, and they're like, hey, who'd you get into a fight with? because I, that was sort of my reputation at this time, you know? Now they, but they were assuming I had gotten into a fight. They weren't obviously like, oh, obviously you pulled a pair of plier handles into your eye socket. They just assumed something. So when you ask a loaded question or an assumptive question, you're already accusing the person of something, whether it's good or bad. And this actually happens in the Gospels in John chapter 9. So that's where we're going to be this morning. If you want to open your Bibles, you can use the YouVersion app on your phone. We'll also have the text on the screen for you. But we're going to be in John chapter 9 when Jesus' disciples ask him a loaded question. Here's what happens. So as Jesus was walking along, he saw a man who had been blind from birth. Rabbi, his disciples asked him, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sins or his parents' sins? Interesting, right? 
Jesus' disciples assumed that the reason that the man was born blind was because he or his parents had done something to deserve it. He had committed some sin that caused God to strike him with blindness. And that was a common belief in Jewish culture. And let's be honest, this still hangs around a little bit today. Now, it is true that all suffering is the result of the fall of humanity, of, the, of our original sin. And as a consequence of the mess that we've created, which is a broken world. It's not true, though, that there is a direct correlation between our moral failures and our personal suffering. It's not karma. It's not a system. Here's what Jesus says. It's not, it was not because of his sins or his parents' sins, Jesus answered. This happened so the power of God could be seen in him. Wow. Jesus is stating this was not caused from sin. Jesus is boldly stating that this man's problem, his blindness, his position in life was divinely crafted for a specific moment in time for God's glory to be revealed in him. Now, this, this would have shocked people that, that Jesus was using this man, that God was using this man instead of someone successful or a religious leader to display his glory because it was believed that prosperity was directly related to God's work in your life. Now, here's what that means for us. You know, you may be going through some stuff right now that you would admit is directly a result of your poor decisions and actions. You know, there's a saying, hey, everything happens for a reason, and sometimes that reason is because you make bad decisions, right? We can't blame everything on the devil or other people. You know, I'm the common denominator in all of my bad decisions. I've been there for all of them. But maybe you're really trusting in Jesus, you know, you're trying your best to follow him. You're staying faithful to Jesus and his word. You're, you're trying to live above reproach. You know, when, when there's sin in your life, you, you admit it, you confess it, and you turn away from it. You see the fruit of the Holy Spirit growing in your life, and yet there's something or some things happening that you just don't understand. And you start to question, God, what did I do or what am I doing to deserve this? Well, this, this text is for you because I know it's so difficult and it seems so unfair, but God allows us to go through suffering at times. And we may not understand why, but God can and does reveal his glory through suffering. You know, the greatest display of God's glory, his love, his grace, his forgiveness, and his victory over sin was the cross, Pastor John Piper says that the cross is the blazing center of God's glory. What seemed to be the greatest suffering ever experienced was the greatest display of God's glory ever. So even when it doesn't make sense, just like the cross did not make sense on that Friday, we're called to trust. We're called to trust that a day is coming when you will understand why what you're experiencing was for your good and for God's glory. And that's a promise from Scripture because Romans 8, 28 says, and we know that in all things, all things, God works for the good of who? Those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So Christian, if you are suffering, there is hope, there is purpose. And that's not the end of your story. The suffering is not the end of your story. 
And it wasn't the end of this man's story because here's what happens in this account. It says, then, then he spit on the ground, talking about Jesus, and he made mud with his, the saliva and spread the mud over the blind man's eyes. He told him, go wash yourself in the pool of Siloam. Siloam means scent. So the man went and washed and came back seeing. Now, my vision is pretty bad. I can't read a license plate from like three feet away if I don't have my contacts in, which is not related to the incident from earlier. I've just always had bad vision. I've never had my optometrist walk out into the waiting room, grab some dirt from one of the plants, spin in it, make some mud, and then like put a, use that as a topical treatment for my eyes, okay? And if that's ever happened to you, you need to file a complaint. That's not right, okay? Now, saliva was believed to have some medicinal properties. Maybe you know this. You know, maybe when you were little, your mom licked your, licked your thumb and, you know, wiped a scrape or whatever. Maybe she's still trying to do it. All right, let's just stop, okay? It's gross, and I'm 42, Mom. It's enough. But mud, that's weird, right? And gross. Because there were a lot of animals around at this time. This would have been like dirt from the county fair. You wouldn't want this on your face. But Jesus chooses to heal this man in this unique way. And we're not sure why, because he could have just said the words and the man would have seen. You know, I'm taking some liberty here, but perhaps it was because Jesus used the dust of the ground as a reflection about how he, he, was, he used that same dust to bring about human life. And he was showing that he was still the God of the materials that he used to create the first humans. Weird or not, it worked. But it didn't work until the man took a step in faith. Then he was healed. It wasn't until he went to the pool of Siloam and washed his face that he could see, which seemed like an absurd request. It's like, all right, now you're, first of all, you're blind. Now you gotta go with your mud-caked face and find your way through the town to the pool of Siloam, right? Seems like a joke. But this emphasizes something Jesus' mother said in John 2. You know, if you go back to John 2, Jesus' first miracle where he turns water into wine, the whole scene was he's at this wedding. They run out of wine, which we may not understand the context, but this was a bad deal. And so Jesus has a plan here, and, and his mother says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And what he told them to do was ridiculous, right? Because he says, hey, go fill those stone jars with water. They're probably thinking, hey, buddy, we're not out of water. We're out of wine. You're about to make a bad situation worse. But they did it. And because they did whatever he said, they got to be a part of his first miracle. And because this man did what Jesus told him to do, he was healed of his blindness. So do whatever he tells you. It applied at the wedding in Cana. It applies to this blind man. And it applies to you and I. If I could sum up what it means to follow Jesus, it's what his mom said. Do whatever he tells you. This is an incredible account of Jesus demonstrating his love for a man who didn't earn it, his, Jesus' authority over creation, and this man was healed of his blindness. What a happy ending to this story, right? Until the religious folks find out. Here's what happens. Then they took the man who had been blind to the Pharisees. Because it was on the Sabbath that it happened, that Jesus had made the mud and healed him, the Pharisees asked the man all about it. So he told them, he put mud over my eyes, and when he washed it away, I could see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man, Jesus, is not from God, for he's working on the Sabbath. Others said, 
Okay, but how could God, or how could an ordinary sinner do such a miraculous signs? So there was a deep division of opinion among them. So here we go again with the religious leaders getting mad at Jesus for working on the day off, right? They, the Pharisees had made a huge list of do's and don'ts regarding the Sabbath. You know, they took the commandments God had given them and they added on to the point that it had become burdensome and actually made it more difficult for people to come to God. And technically, technically making mud was violating the rules of the Pharisees. They didn't care that the poor guy who was blind his whole life could finally see. They just didn't want any mud making on the day off, right? But why, though? Why? I mean, were the Pharisees just, you know, the type of pessimistic people who no matter what happened, they always saw the glass as half full or, or, or half empty? Or were they, the type, were they just jealous of Jesus' influence and, and his popularity? Maybe, but I think it goes further than that. I think there's a lot of fear involved here. Because the Israelites, they had been exiled to Babylon, from which they had just returned a few centuries before, and it was because they had gone astray. They had started worshiping other gods. So to prevent that from ever happening again, they created rules to, to make sure they weren't going to turn away. And Jesus, by his actions and, and influence, seemed to be leading God's people astray. So they're not going to let this happen, which explains a lot of the violent reaction to Jesus from the Pharisees. They believed that someone from God or claiming to be God would not break their rules by working on the Sabbath. You could sum up their attitude with today's bottom line. There are none so blind as those who will not see. I wish I could tell you I'd made this, this up, but I haven't. This is a proverb, not from the book of Proverbs. It's a wisdom proverb, and it's, it's uh, traced back to John Haywood from 1546. But it reminds me of the biblical verse of Jeremiah 5.21, which says this. Listen, you foolish and senseless people, with eyes that do not see and ears that do not hear. The Pharisees couldn't see the miracle of the healing through the details of their rules. You could sum it up again with saying there are none so blind as those who will not see. The Pharisees would not see the miracle through their details of rules. And this gets so bad that they actually question if the healed man was really the same guy. And, and it goes on with them drilling the man and even bringing his parents in for questioning. So for the second time, they called in the man who had been blind and said, God should get the glory for this because we know this man, Jesus, is a sinner, and the blind man gives one of the most incredible responses of all time. He says, I don't know whether he is a sinner, the man replied, but I know this, I was blind and now I can see. Amen. Finally, the Pharisees are so furious they can't take it anymore. They start attacking him. They said, you were born a total sinner, they answered. Are you trying to teach us? And they throw him out of the synagogue. The Pharisees are so upset, they bully the man for his healing, and they accuse the man and, and Jesus and, and, you know, God on earth of being a sinner. They punish the man for being healed by throwing him out of the synagogue because they believe that Jesus cannot be from God if he's working on the Sabbath. But Jesus is showing the whole point of the Sabbath was to, to set you free, to set people free. Because we know that work can be an idol. You know, if you're like me, you know, maybe you're like, ah, oh, you know, if I don't work seven days, I just don't know how God is going to get this done. You know, you think like, man, if you don't put in the extra hours, it's, you know, the business is going to shut down tomorrow. 
or, or if the Sabbath frees you from religion that makes you feel like you have to constantly follow rules to earn God's favor, which leads to the slavery of self-righteousness. So who is really blind and who is really a sinner is starting to become evident because there are none so blind as those who will not see. Well, Jesus comes back into the account after the man is forced out of the synagogue. When Jesus heard what had happened, he found the man and asked, do you believe in the son of man? The man answered, who is he, sir? I want to believe in him. You have seen him, Jesus said, and he is speaking to you. Yes, Lord, I believe, the man said, said the man, and he worshiped Jesus. So as Jesus does, he uses the miracle to point to something greater. In this, Jesus reveals that he is the Son of Man. The Son of Man is this Old Testament figure from Daniel 7 that, that indicates Jesus' essence and authority as God himself. And because of who Jesus is and what he has done for the man, the man is willing to listen to Jesus and in that realization begins to worship him. Jesus then said, I entered this world to render judgment, to give sight to the blind and to show those who think they can see that they are blind. Some Pharisees who were standing nearby heard him and asked, are you saying we're blind? If you were blind, you wouldn't be guilty, Jesus replied, but you remain guilty because you claim you can see. So now Jesus finally shows the point of this discussion. The Pharisees are the ones who are truly blind. Maybe not physically, but spiritually. They are blind to God, to the, to the possibility of God functioning outside of their preconceived rules and details and ideas about how he would work. Their religious arrogance and burdensome rules had blinded them to the possibility of their own sin and need for Jesus. You know, how ironic is it that the Pharisees' sin caused their blindness and the man's Sin, the man's sin was not the cause of his blindness. How silly, right? I can't believe that the Pharisees could be so blind. You know, I mean, I am so glad we're not like that. I hope you can sense my sarcasm in that statement. Because it's easy to scoff at the Pharisees, right, and, not, and assume that we're nothing like them. You know, when I read the Gospels, I often don't see myself as a Pharisee. Usually I see myself more like Jesus or one of the disciples, but the truth is, is that we're more like the Pharisees than we want to admit. And usually we don't even realize it. And we don't want to. Because blindness is scary. Blindness, I mean, could you imagine, like, you know, like, I don't know why God orchestrates this stuff, but like Wednesday I started seeing this bright light in the center of my vision on my left side. And so I called the eye doctor on Thursday. This just happened on Thursday morning. They're like, you got to come in right now. So I went in, they did the scans, and I'm sitting there. I can't see anything because of my contacts. And the, the optometrist is like, ah, oh, everything seems good. Oh, wait, hold on. One of the scans showed that the, that the vitriol fluid in my eye is starting to pull away from my, from my retina. And I was like, so do I take a pill or something? He's like, no, it's permanent. And I was like, he said the light will go away, but now you have to be careful because you could have retinal detachment and lose your vision in that eye. And that shook me, Right? Because I'm like, I already can't see that well, and now I'm going to like lose half my vision. That's scary, right? I mean, the thought of not being able to see. But I'm telling you that spiritual blindness is worse. Because there are none so blind as those who will not see. And I think we are unaware and in denial of our spiritual blindness. Why is that? Here's why I think. First, we compare ourselves to the deluded standard of culture. 
standards that fall far, far, far below God's standard, right? It's real easy to look at our world and say, yeah, I'm still pretty Christian, but we're not called to live above the world's standards. We're called to live to God's standards. The second is this. We compare ourselves to others and point out their sins so ours don't seem so bad, right? You know, somebody you know, might say something to, you know, about something I'm doing. I'm saying, yeah, but you do this. That doesn't have anything to do with it. Right? They're trying to tell me something they see in my life. Or the third one is this. We argue so much for our righteousness that it leaves little, leaves little time to reflect on the, remaining, or the reality of remaining sin. Right? I mean, I can oftentimes think I'm a pretty good guy until somebody points some stuff out, and I don't even want to see those things. This is the basic nature of sin. Sin is deceitful. You know, it blinds, it hides, it defends it blames, it masquerades as acceptable, it points fingers, and even questions the goodness of God. Sin always blinds the person who's sinning, and here's where the deception comes in. A physically blind person is never unaware of their blindness, right? They know that they can't see, so they, they set up boundaries and ask for help to stay safe. Spiritually blind people, however, are convinced that they can see quite well. The Pharisees were pretty sure they had 20-20 vision on this, so they don't ask for help, they don't set up boundaries because they think they can see. So what do we do? What do we do? Well, when you first put your faith in Jesus, God opens your eyes. He takes away that blindness. But you know, if I wore the same prescription that I wore when I first got my glasses at eight, I would be pretty dangerous, all right? I wouldn't be able to see very well. And so are you willing to let God upgrade your prescription? Allow God to keep sharpening your vision, to keep showing you things. You know, as I've walked with Jesus, I've seen him open my eyes more and more. But you have to want it. And here's how it happens. You admit and you ask. You know, you admit that you're more spiritually blind than you realize and you seek help. You seek help. You ask God to open your eyes as you read his word. You know, I'll be reading, I'm reading my Bible right now. I'm like, oh, I know somebody who needs to read this. It's like, no, I, I need to read this. You know, you hear a sermon, you're like, oh, man, I got to send this to so-and-so. Man, maybe you should wrestle with it for a bit. Ask him to search your heart and show you where you are blind. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24 says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. And I'm telling you, that is a scary prayer. Because as I prayed this, I thought, okay, so God's gonna like sprinkle some holy dust on me and he's gonna bring my sins to my mind and him and I will work it out together. But I found out that it's often other people who I have hurt because of my sin that will confront me on it. And it is so difficult. And then ask the Lord to give you a humble and receptive heart when you hear, when Christians trust, or you trust confront your sin even if you think they're totally inaccurate because that's how they're experiencing you. Can you put down your pride and admit that you may, may have been wrong? Can you read God's word with a willing spirit? Why does this matter? Why is, it, why is it important that we're able to see clearly, spiritually? Well, if you're a believer, let me ask you this. Would others say they see Jesus reflected in your life? One of, the hardest, one of the hardest questions I've ever been asked 
is, is this. I was, you know, I was at my counselor one time, and I was, like, you know, answering with some Bible, or some Bible verses because I'm a pastor, and I was like, oh, yeah, the fruit of the Spirit. And she says, great, let's talk about that. How would you say your family is, is seeing the fruit of the Spirit in your life? And I was like, oh, I don't think they are. If you don't know what the fruit of the Spirit is, it's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Would you see people, would you say people are seeing that reflected in your life? Or do they see rules, judgment, bitterness? Do me a favor, don't ask yourself that question. Ask others and listen and agree and be willing to change. The second one is this. Do you see others through a lens of religion or a lens of grace? You know, do you have many friends who aren't Christian? Do you try to protect yourself and your family from people who are not like you, or do you see them as Jesus sees them, right? Do you see people as just the result of their actions? You know, like this blind man, obviously it's his fault he's blind, or do you see them as part of a broken world who need grace just as much as you do? God can show you where you are blind in these areas and can give you sight if you are willing, because again, you have to want this. And it won't be easy, and it won't be comfortable, because growth never comes out of comfort. God will give you sight when he, you ask, and he will probably use other people to do so. Now, if you're here and you've never even thought of this idea, you know, maybe you might be here for a lot of reasons. Maybe you came because it's Father's Day. Your dad said, hey, we're going to church, right? And you're, you're not a Christian. You're just checking this thing out. First of all, we are so glad you're here. You are welcome here. This is a place for you to come and wrestle through your doubts and ask tough questions. And you've never even considered the idea that you're spiritually blind, right? But maybe what you've heard today has shaken something inside of you, and you want what that blind man had. You want the ability to see Jesus for who he really is and to be able to follow him. And we want you to be able to do that. But you have to want to see. You have to want to to believe, because there are none so blind as those who will not see. So as we close the service, I'm going to pray. And if you're here, and you've never placed your faith in Jesus, you've never believed in him, you don't think you've ever, you know, taken that step where he's forgiven you for your sins, during this prayer, I'm just going to allow you to pray along with me, and you can pray silently. You don't have to say it out loud. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you for your word that reveals our blindness. God, would we have hearts that are willing to, to, to listen to your word, to see your word, and to see how it applies to our life? God, would we, have, would we have hearts that are humble enough to hear other Christians who love us and care for us when they have not only the right but the obligation to confront us on our sin? God, would you increase our, our prescription? Would you increase our vision? And God, maybe there's some in here this morning who have never taken that step, who have never let you cure them of their blindness, who have never placed their faith in you. I just want to give you that opportunity this morning. So if that's you this morning, you can just pray these next words silently in your heart. God, I believe that I am blind. I believe that I'm a sinner. God, I believe that you sent your son to live on this earth, to live a perfect life, to give his life on the cross for my sins so that I could be forgiven, and that he came back to life three days later to show that he has victory over death. And I believe in you, and I ask you, Jesus, to forgive me of my sins and to come into my life and be my Savior and my God and my Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.
If you said that prayer this morning, you can now say, I once was blind, but now I see. Thank you guys so much for being here this morning. I hope you have an awesome week. We'll see you next weekend.